The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. I thought we'd begin tonight just to see if there are any questions about our sitting practice before I go, in, go into the talk. And uh, um, for those of you who are following along in Ajahn Tomato's book, we just ended the middle section that's on meditation practice. So this is seems like an appropriate time just to check in. <coughs> and it's often useful for everybody, myself included, to just reflect about, you know, what is my understanding of sitting meditation practice? What's the intention? What techniques support that intention? What seems to get in the way for me? And just to say it out loud, it, uh, it helps normalize the practice for all of us. Like, it's easy to feel that the mess that sometimes I notice is exclusive to me. It's, and everybody else is different or whatever. So if you have any questions, thoughts about sitting practice that you'd like to share, this is a good time to bring it up. Mark? Over the last six months or so, I'm trying to become more and more aware of feeling as I'm sitting. And I get a little confused sometimes because the more attuned I get, the more I, aware I am that there are pleasant things going on, there are unpleasant things going on, and there are things going on all at once. Often, you know, sometimes something's real but, but often I can detect a mix of at least two, if, if not all three. So then I tend to sit here and kind of start having a mental debate about which is predominant in that, you know, that, that's not helpful. So anything you could suggest to kind of keep from sort of wandering around looking for which is predominant? Well, it's really okay to narrow your field so that um, in terms of looking at feeling tone, and in this context, the, the question that Mark's asking, he's, it's, a, it's a technical definition of feeling tone. Sometimes we use the word feeling sort of more generally to refer to body sensations, but he's talking that it's actually a quality of the mind, this feeling tone, because whatever experience we have, whether it's a physical experience like hearing a sound or having a physical touch or a mental experience like remembering a memory or having a memory, there's always a feeling tone associated with every experience that we have. This is just sort of Buddhist psychology. So every mind moment, every experience, as long as we're alive, there will be a feeling tone associated with that experience. And that feeling tone is just based on how the mind's been conditioned. So when, when you look at something you like, you have a positive feeling tone. You can't help yourself from having a positive feeling tone if it's something you like. And if you see something you don't like, you're going to have an unpleasant feeling tone, pain, or you know, it's just going to be unpleasant. And if you see something you're not sure of, you're not, you don't even know what it is, then you're going to have a neutral feeling tone. Or it's subtly pleasant or subtly unpleasant, but so subtle that you don't know, so it feels neutral. That's really what the neutral feeling tone is. 
And so in Buddhist practice, and this is one of the classic reflections or contemplations, so as the mind calms, you can take on particular themes to contemplate. And one theme that's very useful to contemplate is to train the mind to see feeling tone. So in a way, we're really narrowing <laughs> what's relevant as a training. And we're just learning to see feeling tone. And you can even do that within the context of just the breath. That's what I was getting to, Mark. Um, and it's interesting, like, when you're not certain what's predominant in your mind, then that state of confusion itself has a feeling tone associated with it, which is unpleasant, probably. You know, the confusion or doubt. And you can notice the feeling tone of that. Because it, it is slippery, and that's, that's a kind of more pervasive quality of dukkha. The fact that things are confusing or that um, before you can really get clear about this, you see something else. You know, that, that whole nothing can really be seen clearly because it's coming and going, changing. This is happening, now this. And uh, one of the more subtle parts of dukkha or aspects of dukkha is this experience of being bombarded by experience. So we have a sensitive heart or mind and our heart and mind, as long as we're conscious, we are bomb bombarded by experience. Sounds, smells, tastes, thoughts, memories, feelings, or emotions, I should say. And, uh, and that's a kind of subtle affliction, and it's disturbing. And so I kind of got that tone a little bit in what you were saying. And so you can notice that that itself has an unpleasant feeling tone associated with it. So that's that basic um, technique and practice, which is just to step back. So if this isn't clear, then we step back and we notice the experience is the fact that this isn't clear. So we're actually paying attention to the experience of not knowing what's predominant. Instead of trying to figure out what's predominant, just sort of notice that it's not clear what's predominant and it's like this. It's unpleasant to not know what's predominant and that unpleasantness is like this. And then when you really connect with the unpleasantness of that uncertainty, that moment of connecting is subtly pleasant. Because the mind's not distracted in that moment. It's like connecting with reality as it actually is when we see this uncertainty or doubt. And that moment of contact is subtly pleasant because the mind is not confused in that moment. There's no delusion in that moment. And it feels good. And you can go, ah, oh, pleasantness is like that. And then you might notice the pleasantness, and then the next moment may be some very subtle attachment to having really got it <laughs> and, and, and liking that sort of pleasant feeling that comes when the mind connects. And you can say, ah, oh, you know, attachment is unpleasant. And the unpleasantness of attachment is like this. <laughs> Other thoughts about practice? Yoko? Um, I'm wondering why people meditate. I think that question you posed earlier sort of hit me that why do I meditate? Somehow that um, I have this tendency to try to turn down the meditation in the means or end in itself. And somehow it's like a character for me that I know somehow it's good. I 
she noticed, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, so correct me if I'm off, uh, just uh, not wanting to think too much about why she's meditating, but just having a general sense that it's good for her and just, I'm going to just do it, and I'm not going to, you know, sometimes you can say overanalyze sort of why it's good. And I think generally that can, that, that is an okay approach, but, but we also have to appreciate that if we're not clear about what we're doing, like when we actually sit down, that the mind will move, it will kind of go to its sort of baseline habits. And if we don't make an effort, like if we're trying to cultivate something new, we have to make an effort because the mind's habit is always to fall into its habits, to always go to the most well-practiced habits, which may be for most of us distraction like regurgitating the past or fantasizing about the future. And so we have to have some enough clarity because otherwise we don't, like, we may have that wholesome intention to just do something wholesome. But it's not enough just to have that wholesome intention to do something wholesome. We also have to know what that wholesome thing is. Like we need a direction. And that's sort of the seed of wisdom. And that's why often a meditation teacher, you know, especially the um, more senior teachers, they make such a point at talking about right attitude or right view. Often we call it right view in Buddhism. Like, you, that we have to begin, I mean, even though we may be just sort of raw beginners, we still have to begin with right view, whatever that means for us. It's like getting clear about what this is about. Because otherwise our meditation practice is just another way of reinforcing the ego. Everything we do is a way of reinforcing the ego. We'll just turn our practice into something that supports what the problem is. It's like we're recreating the problem, except now we're doing it with our meditation practice. And so we, we need to remember that, see, the ego always wants to get happiness. So, and this kind of is about a little bit one of the points I was going to mention in the talk tonight. So the tendency is always the habit, the ego habit, the self-centered habit, is always to try uh, to try to find happiness for Mark. I want to ha be happy. And so we immediately create uh, the context of future and present and past. Like now in the present, I'm not happy, and I want to be happy, so I imagine a future where I'll be happy. And this is, I hope this is sounding typical because this is something I, I'm assuming we all do and that it sets something in motion and we don't want to do this in our meditation practice we really want to come right into this moment and understand that, that right in this moment there's the possibility of dukkha or freedom because this is the this is the only place we can learn that dynamic the possibility of dukkha or non-dukkha you know tension 
or freedom from tension. Stress, no stress. Entangled mind, non-entangled mind. Fearful mind, heart, mind, free of fear. So we, we want to be, be um, practicing right here. And the sense of self doesn't hold up so well when we get rid of past, present, and future. Because when we're really coming into that dynamic, there's really no room for the thought of Mark who wants to be happy. Because it's like, it's just the activity of tension or non-tension, you know, and observing that and observing the causes and conditions for when the heart gets burdened, when the heart's free of being burdened. Um, so I think your point is sort of like the point that it doesn't help to overanalyze why we're meditating. I totally agree with you. But we, but we do want to bring our deepest aspiration to each set, to each moment, actually, but in particular to our meditation practice. But it, it doesn't need to involve a lot of thinking. It can be a very short, simple thought, which is, I'm tired. I'm tired of being stressed. I'm tired of being fearful. I'm tired of feeling needy. And, and just in recognizing that in a direct way, there can be a deeper sort of aspiration or intention, which is, this heart wants to be free. Not later. You know, now I don't want to be happy when I'm 65. The truth is, when I'm looking directly, is this heart that feels burdened now, if I'm authentic, present enough to know that this heart is entangled or burdened or fearful or needy now, then I also know that there's an intention, there's a wish to be free of that weight now, right now. And there's that's real wisdom, just knowing that is wisdom, and that's a great place to start your set. Because then we're motivated to connect and sustain attention with the breath in a wholesome way. We're motivated to move away from self-centered thinking because it's so it contributes to that weight, to that entanglement. But if we forget that, we'll, we'll basically be in the place of thinking that if I think hard enough, I'll find happiness. You know, if I think about my future hard enough, I'll get excited and I'll figure out what to do with my life. But if we're really right there with the present moment entanglement, if we do that, we'll notice it's just making things worse. So we do want to come back there, but it, it, often we tend to overthink it, and that doesn't get us there anyway. So if you take from what I said tonight that you should sit down and then think about why you're meditating, you may end up spending the whole 40 minutes thinking about why you're meditating and end up feeling more contracted than you were at the beginning of your set. So that's why you could just do something very simple like reflecting on uh, at the beginning of your set that here sits a suffering human being, you know, or a confused human being that wishes to be free, wishes to be free here and now. And then that motivates us to take on the practice, you know, to be in the moment. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? John? Is it John? David, I'm sorry. I'm just wondering, during this process, um, the entanglement process, when mm -hmm. you're sitting and meditating, uh, when you breathe, 
15 minute mindful breathing and uh, you get the calming effect from that. Mm -hmm. Is that the first, do you think that's the beginning of the disengagement of the interest in your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. Okay. That the calmness has nothing to do with the breath. The calmness has a lot, a lot to do with what we're not doing. In a way, the calmness is the, is the natural background of the mind, but, but due to our habits, we're constantly agitating. And the, the, it's not a perfect simile, but the one that's used a lot is the ocean, you know, and the ocean, you know, in some places at least, is very deep and very still. But it's relatively easy for the surface to get disturbed by a wind or a boat or something. And then, you know, when the surface of the water is disturbed, it's like the mind, you know, if we're sitting on a boat or floating above the water, we get transfixed by all that reflection and all that movement of the waves, the light, the play of the light. And we're totally oblivious to the depth. And it's the same thing. Our mind is in the habit of being transfixed with the surface activity, which we could call thinking or self-centered thinking. And it's transfixing. That's its nature. The part of the mind gets fixed, gets sticky with that mental activity. Inherently, thoughts aren't a problem. But because of what the way we relate to our thoughts, that self-centered attachment or, or clinging or identification, it, uh, it distorts the mind or uh, confuses the mind or the heart. So it's, it's um, so when the mind is real busy, like it's sort of like when you're watching a program where they show um, like a lot of pictures going on, and then as you're breathing mindfully, then uh, when the mind is engaged, entangled in it, okay, it's the ego is involved, right? And then as your breathing starts to um, soften, then your mind pulls away from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what you can even do it visually. I mean, there, it, sh it should work in any mode of experience. So if you just do it visually, you can just sort of bring a soft gaze to the room. Now, most of you are looking at back of heads, but you just, as you gaze into the room and you see the different shapes and colors, if you just have a soft gaze, you're not really looking at any particular person. And you might just like bring your focus slightly away from a particular person. And but take, a, take in the whole visual field as one thing. And when we do that, the mind, doesn't the mind isn't necessarily very reactive. But if we start looking at individuals, every time we look at an individual, the mind then perceives that individual just because of its habit and then has an opinion, a thought, basically, about that. And it's... The mind, the self-centered thinking mind, is kind of locking in. And so what we're training ourselves to do is be in the world with friends, with, you know, different responsibilities, that training the mind not to fix any more than is necessary. And we realize it doesn't need to be that fixed, not nearly as much as we think it does. And then even in those moments when it does need to fix, lock in a little bit, then the next moment can be complete release because we understand that release. But see, now we take the fixation, the tightness in the mind, the clinging or the identification in the mind, we take that to be our background. We're actually frightened when the mind isn't identified with any concept because it's so unfamiliar. So that's one of the things we do with the breathing. The more we practice with the breath, 
the more the breath is no longer a concept. It, it is kind of a concept when we begin mindfulness of breathing as a particular technique. But the more you do it, the more it's just the flow of nature. It doesn't have a concept. It isn't a noun. It's an, a process, an activity. And uh, when, and then, then as we go through our day, even if we're, if we can just bring mindfulness of the breath in moments as we go about our day, it's sort of. Uh, we have a moment of non-conceptualizing, not being identified with our concepts. It may be just an instant in the middle of a business meeting that's an hour long, that it totally throws the business meeting into relief because it shows us another possibility, another way of being, which is to be not fixated, not identified with self and other. You know, that sort of, once we turn things into concepts, then there's dualism. We're we exist apart, because that's one of the concepts that we use a lot. If there's me, and then there's this situation, you know, giving a talk at Common Ground. And then there's the inherent tension involved in that, because as soon as there's a me in this situation, then, then, then there's, of course, room for fear, and room for desire, and all kinds of things that are agitating for the heart. So we want to cultivate, a, we, with a particular um, experience, we want to cultivate this freedom or this more uh, pure way of being, uh, a, be, a way of being that's free of attachment and identification. And see, and then it's like our teacher. So as soon as we bring up, uh, we kind of drop into that, being in the body, being with the breath, or even the repetition of a word, if we can do that in a way that's not clinging, then it's like we're reminding ourselves of this possibility of not clinging, of just letting things be a process. And would that be, I mean, you can just get an intuitive sense of how freeing it would be. It's very easy for us to imagine our life as like, here's Mark uh, really struggling to be a happy human being, to be a good human being. And that's a relatively wholesome attachment fixation, but it's still a fixation. You know, Mark, who's trying to be a good, happy human being. But if I have a few moments of just mindfulness of breathing or just a few moments of being fully present with the body, meaning no fixation on concepts, just an opening to the natural flow of things, then this whole, uh, in the next moment when I'm more kind of falling back into my habits, I have a view that that this whole idea of being Mark who wants to be happy and free, that's just part of nature. It's also part of this flow. It's not something I have to take so seriously, the whole drama of being a somebody who wants to be happy and free, who wants to be enlightened. You see? So it's like we don't have, we just have to crack our habit of being tight in one place and then we, then we mine that insight. We sort of try to, we sort of remember that way of relating, relating free of attachment, free of clinging, and we just bring it to all our places in life. It sort of throws into relief all our tightness and all the other places in our life. And we know intuitively it doesn't have to be that way because we have that moment with our breath or that moment with the sound or that moment with the body, with seeing. I used to get this, uh, I remember in the early 80s, I, I worked in Washington, D.C. for a few years, and I was just starting meditation practice, and 
we used to, I lived uh, right, right in the center of the town, and we used to sit by the Potomac and just watching the play of light in the water. And uh, if you've ever done this, I and mean, most human beings like this, this is why, people, why real estate along the ocean or lake is so expensive. Because I think there's so, something about the sense of space, but there's also something about the play of water, light on water, where the mind's tendency is to want to fix it. But it's, you can't fix that experience. It's a dance that doesn't stop, that doesn't allow you to, the mind to kind of make something out of it. It's just as the play of energy, of light energy. And, uh, and so if you can just open to that experience, and after the mind gives up trying to fix, it will relax. It sort of takes it in. It's the same if you're watching the light through the leaves or uh, a cacophony of sound, especially if it doesn't have human words, um, like the wind blowing through the trees, something like that, or water trickling. And the mind, because it's a process, the, the experience of process is so obvious, it doesn't give a lot of it's harder for the mind to fixate. I really got this. I, I did a lot of backpacking right after college. And uh, I really got, the more I was in a primitive wilderness area where there's fewer and fewer sort of things, sort of uh, human things around, the more I noticed that my mind would sort of lock into memories and, you know, like think harder as a way, almost like a, a defense from the mind, heart, body being a natural process. So that's why traditionally spiritual seekers, they go to those kind of places. They go to where um, the human tendency to uh, be over-identified with the mind, the thinking mind, there's no support for it or less support for it. And then even if you live in a spiritual community, there'd be like, fewer opportunities just to gab and gossip and talk because that's of course a way of reinforcing that tendency. Any other thoughts before we go on? Well, uh, occasionally when my mind isn't elaborating on things or constructing or dozing off and so on. <laughs> Sometimes, though, I kind of, I seem to be in kind of an, what I might call an intense state. Almost like it's wordless, but it's like being very awake and so on. And I'm just wondering if that's a naturally arising thing or it's something that I'm kind of like trying to regenerate inside of myself to, you know, mm -hmm. to be super aware or super, you know, well, one of the things that we notice, that people notice when the mind settles down, <coughs> when, it, when it's in balance, is there is tremendous energy. And a lot of people who haven't done practice for a while, um, and you've been practicing for a while, right, Edwin? So uh, one of the things that new people are surprised by is how energized the meditative state is when it's truly in balance. It's a hyper-energetic state. But the energy is like in a potential state, but but it's clearly there. I mean, it's like uh, well, the the word that's often used is that there's a brightness in the mind. Sometimes actually experiences light. Sometimes just a, a more of a tactile experience that every cell feels. Quite
quite alive, very sensitive, and it takes a it can it can be disturbing. The mind tends to either get attached or that gets uh, irritated by that intensity, and so it takes a while as that energy builds in our practice. It takes a while to have the right attitude with it, which is to be really undefended, but 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 really. Uh, not making a big deal out of it at the same time. And it always, when the mind opens to sort of another level of practice, it almost always gets either disturbed or attached. It's just inevitable. And so there's always a period of time where we're learning to be equanimous with a, that more subtle level of sensitivity or wakefulness. Did you have a question? Well, um person here. Mm-hmm. What's your I, name? Betsy. And um, I've done meditation off and on for a few years, but I'm not very consistent. Um, and I guess the, the thing where I get confused and when I focus on the breath, I can pretty easily get relaxed, but it feels almost like I'm zoned out. Yeah. And then like tonight, if I'm doing more of it, really, you're guiding us to be more focused and aware of what's present. Um, it feels like a very different energy to me, and it's, it's very agitated. And that doesn't feel right either. Uh-huh. I, I, anyway, it's just confusing because when I can go back to the breath and calm the breath, I bet you do know. What do you think that? What do you think a, uh, an appropriate way to work with your mind might be? Um, somewhere maybe in the middle. <laughs> yeah, or you might even have to do both. But yeah. but when there's too much agitation and you can't really be open to it, you can't be relaxed with it. Then use a more particular technique that emphasizes the calming, like, like did you say count, you count your breath sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a fine thing to do. But don't become dependent, like that's all you do. So when there's calm, generally this is one of the paths that happens for meditators is they do learn how to calm down and they go right to unconsciousness. And so meditation practice, we're cultivating two qualities, brightness and tranquility. And as soon as they're out of balance, you either get restlessness or you get dullness. But you, there's really no end to how much brightness and tranquility you want. You know, you want to develop both of them. And so, just get a sense of what's out of balance and adjust the, the, how you're directing or orienting your mind to support what's a little bit uh, low relative to what's relatively strong. Yes. Yes. Upakalesa, uh, the defilements of insight. You know, it's like calm is generally good, but calm is one of the real barriers to practice because 
we get confused by it. We think, oh, it is, that's what practice is about, that's the direction I should go. And so we basically stop practicing. We get into a rut where we sit down and we calm down and it's sort of a relatively dull but relatively wholesome, I mean not relatively, it's a dull but relatively wholesome vacation for the mind. And But we're not learning anything, we're not really growing spiritually. So we want to, uh, hand in hand with the development of tranquility, we want to develop a kind of brightness, clarity in the mind that sees things as they are. So when there's too much dullness, then it doesn't even mean you have to change what you're paying attention to. But it, what we're doing is we're bringing more interest. So there's, there really is a quality in the mind of wanting to know the truth. So if, we're, if we've given ourselves a specific technique, that's it, like to be mindful of the breath, then you don't need to change that even. But it's like there's, there exists now in the mind, we're putting something in the mind, we're contemplating the breath as a natural phenomenon. So we're interested in the nature of the breath. That's different than using the breath just to tranquilize the mind. Like what is this phenomena of breathing, this process of breathing? So we want to jettison any kind of expectation or idea we might have and, and really enter into kind of a, an innocence and uh, that's all about interest and intimacy and exposure to the breath as a natural unknown phenomenon. Because we've never known this particular breath. And so we want to get beyond the idea that, oh, I know the breath. So we want to cultivate that kind of willingness to be interested to see Being mindful of the breath will give us every insight we need because, you know, the truth, it's like a, a hologram. I mean, it's all the truth is everywhere. And, and all the mind needs, because the, the, the suffering is based on something that's constructed, and then we get kind of lost in that construction, all the mind needs is to open to the truth of things. And it doesn't matter where it opens to the truth of things. So that, that reflection helps us get interested in the breath. If we really thought that being open to the breath would lead to the deepest experience of freedom, love, wisdom, we'd be interested in the breath. <laughs> so you could cultivate, like when you're on the side of dullness, you can cultivate that just in a few seconds to sort of uh, inspire the mind to be more awake and interested and receptive to the breath. Like everything that uh, that freedom is possible somewhere in this moment. It's just a matter of listening or opening or being receptive, more and more receptive, non-controlling. Anything else before we go on? It's always nice to have questions, even though it's unplanned. It can be bring things out that are really nice to hear. Appreciate your questions. Thanks. So just a few minutes for chapter 14. In chapter 14 in Ajahn Tomato's book, The Mind and the Way, which I've been using as sort of a structure for my talks this year, he's beginning. we're beginning this new section, um, which is really about daily living. It's called living the Dhamma, living the way of truth, you could say, or, or living 
in alignment with the way things are. That's this whole section. And it's really about taking the practice, not just in our sitting, formal sitting time, but taking the practice into our daily lives. And the first chapter is really about this orientation, that it's about freedom. So chapter 14 is freedom of the heart, or freedom of heart. And just getting a sense of what that's about. Like, what is this freedom that we're talking about? It's interesting in that chapter, Ajahn Tomato summarizes freedom. You know, the freedom that we as humans have, we have the freedom to sink or the freedom to rise. And I know that sounds a little dualistic, but I, I think it's a useful metaphor. It's like, I think in the past few weeks I've been talking about this fork in the road that we come up against or come up, we meet every moment. And one direction we sink and the other direction we rise. Sink just means the mind gets contracted, it gets weighed down, or the mind becomes more free or less contracted, less entangled. And so um, this freedom of heart is really about is really about understanding this fork in the road in every moment, like even this moment. If we're trying too hard to understand what I'm talking about, then the mind's getting contracted. If we're just sitting, receiving the words, receiving any meaning or insight that arises in the mind, receiving thoughts and sounds and sensations, then we're, the mind is becoming lighter, less burdened, less fearful, less entangled, less needy. And even if we're in the, the direction of being needy, trying to get something or wishing we were at home in a more contracted state, the next moment there's the same fork, which is now what's being known as contraction. So in this moment we can just open to the contraction or we can make a story out of the contraction. Oh, I'm a bad yogi because I'm trying to get something out of this talk. you know. And then we're suffering more. There's another moment of contraction. And so this is our training to kind of find this fork in this moment, the, the intentions that might lead to getting contracted, more contracted, getting caught or identified with being as somebody who needs to get somewhere. Or we could take, we could relate as uh, with this possibility of being free. Like, can this moment be a moment of freedom? Or what would it look like to be free in this moment? So this is, these are the kinds of questions that can orient the mind in this direction toward freedom. What would freedom look like here and now with these particular conditions, like the conditions of the body, mind, circumstances as they are? What does freedom look like now? What is non-affliction look like now. So even though we talk a lot about freedom, you can I'm sure you get a sense that 
there's a certain discipline, a very important discipline about staying attuned to this fork in the road in every moment. Like then we really get that the the effort we need to make in our daily life is very specific. It's it's relatively wholesome to have this to make an effort to be a good human being. There's nothing wrong with making an effort to be a good human being, to be a good citizen, to be patient, to be kind. But there's a more subtle and more powerful effort that we can make. And we don't have to stop those other efforts even. But we're just emphasizing or getting more interested in this other more subtle effort, which is to be free. To remember that this heart can be free in this moment. Because if we don't remember that, we won't look. We won't sort of uh, look like, well, how can it be free? What does freedom look like here? present moment, if we allow the mind to turn the experience that we're having right now, this experience of our mind and body that we're having right now, if we allow the mind to turn it into a concept, this is my experience, then we'll react to that concept and we'll be on the path towards more tension, more contraction. So remembering the possibility of freedom now, then we're right here on this fence, the present moment fence, and we can fall on this side or we can fall on that side. And uh, the, the practice of being free is really about uh, not trying to get anything out of the present moment. This is the real trick. As soon as I'm on this fence and I think, oh my God, this is my opportunity to be happy, we've already started to fall onto this side. So instead we're on that fence and we practice being receptive to being on the fence. The more we open to being on the fence as a human being in this moment, the more we open to it, then we fall into freedom. The more we try to be free, then we fall into contraction. So the key, this key that we stumble upon in every moment is if we try to get our freedom, we're lost. If we practice being open and undefended, we discover freedom, we realize freedom. But we don't realize freedom because we wanted to be free. We realize freedom because there's a particular cause for freedom to arise, which is not trying to be free, basically. Because only an ego wants to be free. Does that make sense? Only the sense of a suffering mark, which is a part, who, who wants to be free. So this is why, you know, in Buddhism we say, sometimes people say things like, there are no enlightened beings, there are no free beings. There are only enlightened moments or enlightened or free moments. 
Because when we fall to this side, we're not Mark who's free. There's just a moment of freedom. If there's a Mark trying to be free, that's already a contraction, and it's leading to more contraction and fear and wanting. So we emphasize Dhamma like opening to things as they are in the moment. And it's so available. I mean, we can do this in the checkout line, you know, to just drop into the experience of waiting. Not to try to get something out of the experience of waiting, not to be a good citizen and wait our turn. So that's a stance that's tense and contracted. But just to be the sensations and the mind, just to be that as it is. So even if there's irritation, don't feel like freedom needs the irritation to be gone. How can, it's really like, where's the freedom with the irritation? Or if your back is stiff, you know, from your day, and you really want to get home and rest, well, where's the freedom with that pain, with that irritation? Where's the freedom? Well, the freedom is in it not trying to make it different than it is. There's real freedom there. But we'll never discover it unless we give up all of our strategies to be a happy human being. So in Buddhism, we make this real emphasis on practicing the practice of freedom, the practice of mindfulness, or the practice of awareness, as opposed to strategies for Mark to be free. So we emphasize a, a way of relating. And then we stumble upon, or we realize, a real freedom. And it's something we can trust. But we can't own it. You know, we can't turn it into a self-centered project, which we're going to do anyway. You know, all of us have, and will continue at times, to turn a meditation practice and our spiritual life into self-centered projects. And then it won't work. And then we'll have doubt about our practice. And we'll give it up for periods of time. I don't know anybody who hasn't given up, given up their practice for periods of time, or at least let it lack some. But that's okay, because that doesn't, giving it up doesn't work either. <laughs> and then hopefully when we come back to it, we, we have kind of uh, uh, maybe a little bit more innocence, like uh, more of a sense of like, I don't really, the ego doesn't really get what this practice is about, which is good. Uh, because then we can then in that moment, like I suggested at the beginning of the sit, to just reflect, okay, I'm a suffering human being. I keep, despite my wanting to be happy, I keep creating ha unhappiness, contraction, and tension. So let me just start with the basics, which is there's a suffering human being here interested in freedom now. And then if we're there, there's a suffering human being, then we're right in the Four Noble Truths. This is the basic reflection the Buddha gives us. But it's not like doctrine, it's really a moment-to-moment -moment reflection. Suffering human being is the first noble truth. I'm a suffering human being. So that's just awareness of contraction. Fear, wanting, wanting to be free, for example. That's a contracted state, and there we are, 
I'm a suffering human being who wants to be free. So right there we're in the first noble truth. And then every time, if we're right there in that experience of being a suffering human being, every time we try to fix that state of being a suffering human being, we see we're going in the direction of more contraction, more suffering. So we stop. Because nobody, no conscious human being will create more tension for themselves. We only do it unconsciously. So if we're really present with being a suffering human being as a present moment experience, then anything the mind does that leads to more contraction, we'll see it. We'll see that oh, this isn't the way, that isn't the way, that's not the way. We keep getting that's not the way. Eventually we stumble just out of just out of chance, probability, we stumble into not doing any of that and we fall this way. And the more times we kind of consciously catch yourself falling on this side of the fence, we begin to intuitively understand where freedom lies. It lies in not doing any of those things. That's all we have to learn. That any self-centered activity is in the direction of contraction. We don't actually have to know what this is. We just have to learn this doesn't work. And the only way we learn that is to begin with, I'm a suffering human being. We have to feel that as a present moment experience so that we'll notice if we do something that increases that quality of burden, being the heart being burdened or entangled or dull or distracted or hopeful or any sort of not, not being content with things as they are. So I'll leave it there. Um, we have a few minutes left. If any, if you have any questions about this particular theme that Ajahn Sumedho is presenting in his chapter 14, people are, of course, welcome to get a hold of the book. It's, at least in my opinion, as you might imagine, I think it's a good book. And uh, if you want more support, you can read along. If you've missed any of the talks from the previous chapters, uh, Tom and, and Jimmy, who's here somewhere, and uh, Todd. In fact, all three of the guys who do all the recording and get the talks on the website are here. They'll get the talks on the website in a week or two, and you can catch the talks that you've missed. So any questions about what was covered tonight? Maybe people have some experiences of this pivot point or this being on the fence point that you'd like to share with the group, your own experience with that. Edwin? Mm -hmm. And speak loudly so they can oh, catch you in the back. It's not, uh, I was just thinking when you mentioned that uh, pivot point or that sitting on the fence that I was seeing a similarity with a lot of processes in nature and uh, in our body like uh, contraction, expansion of the heart, constant back and forth, or breathing in and breathing out, and, uh, and one does not exist without the other, in a sense. And uh, also uh, that uh, <clears throat> sometimes there are, there's a lot of variations within that process. Sometimes it's more tense, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more awakened. And so to, to, to just see that as part of the natural process is very helpful to me. Um, and so not being judging all the time and trying to control it and, and channel it into something. And uh, I was also thinking of 
what I had read long time ago in chaos theory is that those those movements have have variations in them. And for instance, if the heartbeat gets to be too regular, that's where we are most susceptible to having a heart attack uh -huh. because there isn't enough. So it's not ad adapting to the circumstances in which we are. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> And it's interesting, you know, of course, we're all, this is all nature here. Everything is nature. It's all, these, it's all this process that alternates, as everyone's talking about, from one pole to the other. That's just how nature seems to be the characteristic of nature. But part of this nature that we uh, coexist with, or we are, is this language, this and one of the sort of quirky things about language is that the mind can create something that seems to be apart from the natural flow or process of nature, right? But it isn't really apart. It just has the appearance of being apart from that. And see, as soon as it has this idea or the sense of being apart from it, then, of course, it can prefer some parts of the swing to other parts of the swing. And it has this crazy thought that I've got to control the natural unfolding of things. So what we're discovering by watching the breath, being mindful of the breath, being mindful of our lives as they unfold, is we're, we're using natural processes like watching the water, you know, the light in the water, or the sound of the wind through the trees, or the movement of the breath in the body, or the feeling of the body moving when we're jogging. We use these natural processes to rediscover that we can be nature, which means we can drop this quirky thing that's happened through the development, you know, the complexity of our language, where we can create concepts so it, it, it appears that there's something apart from that flow of nature, the natural unfolding of nature, which, of course, we know intellectually there isn't. But yet, our moment-to-moment experience is that there is something apart. We're living inside of that, even though it doesn't make any sense. Oh, isn't nature so wonderful? <laughs> I mean, it's, one of, it's just it's silly. I mean, we laugh when we say that. How could we be apart? But doesn't it feel so obvious that we're apart from nature? The mind is apart from nature? It's because this really quirky thing happened. <laughs> you can read about it in Genesis when they talk about biting the apple. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. Well, you can say something quick, Mike. Yeah, it's just an observation. In, in your talk tonight, we went from some questions about why are we doing this, full circle, it, would, it just made perfect sense. We went through the whole talk of why are we sitting, Somehow I know it's good for me, so I'll do it. And then to all the, I don't know, it's just, it's just an insight I had over your talk that we went all the way full circle. Well, since this doesn't work and that doesn't work, well, then I, I won't do that. And then I come to the realization, maybe I just won't do anything. That seems to work. <laughs> I don't know, your talk went full circle from the questions back to where we are right now. Yeah, and then to your comment right now. <laughs> and see, this is an example, like, even, our, even on the level of words and discussion, whether it's just the discussion within our own mind, it's nature. It's also nature. And nature has 
uh, its own intelligence. Nobody has to control it, be at the center of it. That's true with group processes, and there's many examples, and really kind of interesting examples. I'll give you one, even though it's only a minute over, so don't leave. <laughs> but I, I heard this. I think it's in um, Malcolm, forget it, he's a well-known author. He wrote The Tipping Point and another famous book. What's it? Gadwell? Is that Malcolm? Gadwell? Yes, Yeah, anyway, in, in that book, I heard him being interviewed by Charlie Rose, and I don't remember the whole story, but I think in that book he talks about a, a Russian submarine sank somewhere in the middle of the Pacific or one of the big oceans, and, and they were trying to find it, and they couldn't find it, and they did this experiment where they asked uh, a number of experts in the Navy and other U.S. Uh, governmental organizations to guess where it is. They gave them the data that they did have, and they asked all of them to guess, and then they averaged out all those guesses. And evidently it was there, right there, or very close to right there. And it's just one of these examples, and there are many of these kind of things that just demonstrate that we're not apart from the whole, that nature doesn't have a center or centers that somehow are apart from one another. Now, as an individual, we can be quite confused that even that confusion, as Edwin was pointing to, you know, we could call that chaos theory, like this little thing doesn't make sense. But ultimately, it does make sense. Even our confusion makes sense. And this is important in a, in a very practical way because what keeps us in samsara, keep falling on the wrong side of the fence, is that in this moment when we see how confused we are, what's our impulse? To want to fix it. Now instead what Dhamma practice tells us is to trust it, to open to it, not to think that just because we're a suffering, contracted, confused, desirous, lustful, angry human being that we have to fix it. That's the basic hook we take and we keep falling. So Dhamma practice, Buddhist mindfulness practice tells us to trust it, to open to it, to let it be the way it is. And then we discover freedom in that moment. And we're, we're still Mark, or still Mike, or still the particular mind-body experience. But there's freedom in it now, instead of a contraction in it. So thanks for everyone contributing to the nice talk tonight. I enjoyed it. <laughs>